What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, whether their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Sarah Hum. Sarah, welcome to the Indie Hackers podcast. Hey, Cortland. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You are the founder of a company called Canny. I've been seeing Canny everywhere recently. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is and why people use it? Yeah, uh, Canny is a user feedback tool. So we primarily sell to other software businesses, primarily B2B, um, and we help them keep track of their feedback. A lot of times people grow into this problem, but they might be using a spreadsheet or Slack even to keep track of feedback, like just one off on a one off basis. And eventually they feel the pain of, hey, our feedback's all over the place. Where can we put it all so we can actually use it? Because customers are often saying things that they do need or feel a pain with when they use the product. And so we think feedback is super important. So if I wanted to get feedback from users on ND Hackers and I wanted to use Canny, what would that look like exactly? Yeah. So usually what people do is they'll install some kind of feedback link into the product. So for example, I can go to my profile. That's maybe where I would go look for it and look for feedback. Once I click on it, it goes to their canny site. So you could have like an indiehackers.canny site. And that's, yeah, it's just a persistent place for people to give feedback whenever they have it. As opposed to like a one-off, you know, survey here, please give us feedback on XYZ. It's more of a persistent, yeah, in-product product. Cool. So I mentioned I've been seeing canny everywhere. That's because your product is kind of public. I'll go to another product that I use. And if I want to leave feedback on them, I see their candy board. I see all the features yep. they're working on and the things that they're upvoting. I see the things that their team has prioritized and what they say they're going to work on now or what's on hold. Yep. Uh, and what's cool about this business is that you bootstrapped your way here. Uh, how much revenue are you generating and how big is your team? Yeah, so we just crossed over 50K MRR and we just had one of our best months, I think, so far, which so is pretty exciting. And we're a team of five. Cool. Congratulations. Are you profitable you. on uh, 50K a month with a team of five? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're super proud of it. We like we pay our team our team with the money we make, which feels really, really good. Um, yeah. And we're at, not at risk of dying at any second, which feels, <laughs> feels really good. Yeah. That's got to be <laughs> relieving when your company can't just end. <laughs> yeah. Any given yeah for sure. For sure. Another thing I like about what you're up to is you are a digital nomad of sorts. You're yeah. traveling all around the world while you're building Canny. I'm kind of thinking about doing this maybe next year when my lease is up in my apartment. I've been living in San Francisco for nine years. It'd be nice to have some variety. I've looked at some different cities, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's 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 kind of stressful just thinking about trying to run a company while also traveling all over the place. Yeah, yeah honestly, like we were in the same place. We, uh, Andrew, my co-founder and I both lived in San Francisco for several years before we left you know, when I quit my full-time job, I was like, you know, we're living in one of the most expensive cities in the world and we have a company, but it's not making much money right now. Let's just get out of here and and travel and do do the whole thing. Um, and that was easy when we were a team of two. Like we were always there with each other. We could always bounce ideas off each other. It wasn't a problem. But definitely as your company grows, it becomes harder. But I wouldn't say it's impossible. And I'm really glad we did it. 
So you and your co-founder are a couple. You're actually dating and running this company together and traveling the world together. (laughs) That's like triple hard because some people have trouble just traveling together. Some people have trouble just being together, let alone working together too. How do you make it work with somebody you're so close to? Yeah, honestly, I think like that's why it works almost. Like I, I think if I was in a relationship with someone I wasn't working with, there are so many ups and downs when you're a founder, you know, there's, there's so many things that, that just throw you off. But with Andrew and I, like, we always know what is going on with the other person because we're in it together. So that's great. Like we're great at conflict resolution because, you know, couples fight and that's just a thing. Um, And we've kind of learned how to fight. Um, And yeah, it just, I I think that's, it works really well. Yeah, it's kind of cool to have somebody who understands like the emotional turbulence of being a founder. You don't have to like come home from a long day at work and explain it to them and say, here's what happened. And then they try to be empathetic, but they really don't care because they've heard the story a thousand times. You know, it's more so they're right there with you. And I also like the point about about the fact that you guys are great at conflict resolution. I run (laughs) Andy Hackers with my brother. We've been arguing with each other since we were babies. Basically, <laughs> exactly. we have thirty years of conflict resolution, so it's like there's very few disagreements that are going to get in the way of our business. Mm-hmm. Totally. And when I when I read on, even on indie hackers and on other like startup communities, when I see people kind of arguing over like equity splits and all that, I just feel I just feel like that's not a great place to start a co-founding relationship. No. Um, and so just the fact that we're we can be so open with each other because we've been through it, like that just adds a whole level of comfort. Yeah. So let's talk about how you, how you two got started working mm-hmm. on Canny or maybe yeah. even before that. <laughs> I know Canny is kind of your first business, but also kind of, kind of not your first business because it existed as a, a different business beforehand. Why are you someone who wants to start companies in the first place? I started doing hackathons and for some reason that, just thrill of, you know, building something out of nothing, hacking things together felt really good. And it felt like something I could excel at personally. And, you know, I did try the whole big company thing. I worked at Facebook for about a year and a half before leaving to do Canny. And yeah, I knew that I couldn't be at Facebook for very long, I think. So it just, it just felt right. I don't know. (laughs) Why not? Why couldn't you stay there working a cushy job? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, at Facebook, I worked on Messenger as a product designer. I think, like, it's a, it's a great job, honestly. Like, I, I did enjoy working there very much. It's just, I felt limited almost. Like, I my one job was to do product design. And that was nice. But I wanted to do so much more. And I wanted to learn so much more. And since I started Candy, I have learned so much more. Like, product design is probably... 20% of my time now, um, maybe even less. But I just I just learned so much about marketing and pricing and sales and everything. So I, it's just very fulfilling to me starting a company. Do you think working at Facebook as a product designer gave you the skills that you needed to be a founder or that it was a good stepping right. stone? Or do you think in hindsight, it's something that you could have just skipped? Yeah, I think for me personally, it was an important important starting point. I came from a small Canadian design program. I really had no entry into tech almost. And so having that Facebook background just helped me like understand tech in general and also meet a lot of really cool people. And that's where I met Andrew. Like I probably wouldn't have met Andrew if I didn't work at Facebook. So that was very, very important. And also like we're bootstrapped. So having that sa- saving is was very helpful in our early days. But I would say that working at 
Facebook did not prepare me to be a founder. <laughs> yeah, so you like working there, but it's not exactly the best place to learn how to do your own thing. Yeah, I, I think like I think it's the the one role type thing issue. It's like I I was a product designer there. There was no like there's no startup training. You don't you don't you don't deal with all the problems that a startup goes through. Like Facebook is such an established company. We are abstracted away from everything that is difficult, legal, like all this stuff, like we, we, we don't touch that at all. Um, and it's something that we've had to learn with Canny. Um, but I'm really glad that we have. Tell me about your very first product. It was called yeah. product paints and it yeah. eventually ended up sort of morphing into Canny. You can't really say it's a different business, but it had a different name. It worked yep. differently. Why did you start it? Yeah. Uh, so Andrew and I had always been hacking on things together. We, we've done a couple of other projects before Canny, just like really small side projects that never really went anywhere. But in my last year of school, I had the opportunity to do an independent study, which meant I could do whatever I wanted. So I kind of started a company and got credit for it, which is awesome. But we started Product Pains, which was a community for anyone to give feedback about anything. So you can think like Yelp, Uber, stuff like that. Very consumer focused at the beginning. We grew the community to almost 5,000 people, just people giving feedback about things, which was pretty amazing. But over time, we knew that we had to make money and we saw the potential of product pains was not where we wanted it to be. And it eventually morphed into Canny, which is, which is great because we reuse a lot of the code. Like it was mostly a rebrand almost. And so reposition, we repositioned it rewrote everything so that it was targeting B2B companies and we launched it as Canny. And so it was almost like a, yeah, an early, early version of Canny. You said you were hacking away at a bunch of different things. You tried lots yeah. of different ideas, but you never really went hard on any of them except mm-hmm. for product pains. What made product mm-hmm. pains stand out to you as an idea that had legs? Yeah, I think I think it was very exciting to build a community. I think it was really exciting to see people give feedback about certain things. And also the chance that we could change products, like we could give Yelp feedback and they would change something was very exciting. In hindsight, I think it was not super realistic <laughs> because we were so small and it, it would take a lot of people, I think, to really make an impact maybe. So instead of going after users first, we basically flipped it so that we went after the company first. And so the company says, hey, users, like we are collecting feedback using Canny. Here's where you should give us feedback, which worked out a lot better. (laughs) And it enabled us to make money. So that was great. It's cool to hear you talking about the fact that you were motivated by what was exciting. You thought it was exciting to start a community. You thought it was exciting to have an impact. You thought it was exciting to help change products. How much of your thinking about ideas back then was related to just what you were excited to working on to work on versus what you thought would be a viable business. Yeah, I think honestly, because it was a school project almost, like I wasn't my mind wasn't how am I going to turn this into a business? It was really like what do we think is cool? <laughs> and what can we build like a cool scrappy product out of? And so that's what it became and honestly like the name even speaks for itself. Like it was so like oh like last minute here, this domain is available. Let's just call it product pains, which sounds horrible when I say it now. But um, yeah, it was really like the fact that I think we built a successful business out of, out of it says a lot because it was something that really was just exciting to us. But I think that says a lot too. It, it, it helps us stay motivated today because we still are 
trying to achieve the same mission, still trying to change products, still trying to help teams improve. So yeah, still drives us today. How do you, as someone who's never started a company before, who's never built and committed to a project before, grow a community from nothing into 5,000 members? Yeah. Honestly, Facebook comes in again here. Like Andrew used to work on the React team at Facebook. And soon after he left, his team, one of his teammates, I guess, was like, what What are you doing? And he was like, I'm building this thing called Product Pains. And they're like, what's that? <laughs> and then they started using it for React Native, which is a huge project now. And they started using product pains to collect feedback from other developers. And that just spread because developers usually work at some company. And so when that kind of just spread naturally, other companies would kind of hop in and join. And that's still a pretty strong mechanic for us today. Yeah, word of mouth growth is pretty it's pretty magical when it actually happens. And it's yeah. it's it's hard for me to imagine being in your shoes as someone who quit Facebook and you're working on this product. At this point, you do want it to be a business because you've quit your job and you're burning through your savings and it's growing through word of mouth and people are using it. It's hard for me to imagine being in that situation and deciding, you know what, we need to shift gears and take a different approach. Why did you decide to stop working on product pains? Yeah. So, I mean, like I wouldn't even say we really stopped working on it. We just, it was really a rebrand, repositioned it. Eventually we had a few companies joined product pains and they were like, Hey, do you have a widget for us to put on our websites? And we're like, no, but if we built it, would you pay for it? And they basically said, yeah. And so we built it. They paid us $19 a month to put a product pains widget on their site. So basically users could give feedback directly from their site and yeah, they paid for it. And that was, I guess, really amazing for us. And that just got us to start thinking about, hey, maybe we should switch this up and come from a different angle um, and sell towards sell to the company themselves instead of trying to get the users in first. Um, so that just kind of naturally happened. How long were you working on product pains before that happened? And were you making any revenue at all? Or was that your very first yeah. dollar from a customer? Yeah, the $19 was probably the first money we ever made. Um, we had just been purely making a consumer platform at that point. And so, yeah, the $19 was the first real money that we made. And I don't know, it's kind of complicated how long I've been working on it. I think like when I started in school, I worked on it for maybe six months. Um, and then I graduated, went to work at Facebook. So product pains kind of just died down a little bit. Andrew quit. <laughs> he worked on it. And then I quit and I joined him. And then it became Canny. So that's the whole... <laughs> That's kind of the whole ups and downs of product pains to Canny. <laughs> Did you have like a long period of basically burning through your savings after you quit Facebook? Or was it pretty quick that you decided that it needed to switch over to Canny? Because I know that can be pretty stressful when you quit your full-time job to, to think about how long it's yeah. going to take before this product makes money. Absolutely. I mean, when I, yeah, when I quit, it was still product pains. I think by then we had made the the $19. So that was in the bag. But I think in the next, it was over the, it was over the winter break. So nothing really happened there, but we launched it in March. So about three months after I quit, we had it all rebranded and repositioned as canny. And as I mentioned before, we reused a lot of the same code as we had in product pains. So that made it a lot, a lot faster, but yeah, it was just one random day in March. We were like, why are we waiting to, to launch this thing? Let's just put it out and see if people like it. And they did. 
So let's talk about your your mindset going into this this rebrand because yeah. this is you yeah. really thinking about product pains in a way that you hadn't before. Earlier it was yes. what what I'd be excited to work on. Now it's like, hey, I've quit my job. This is a business that <laughs> needs to make money. I've got to think strategically. This widget thing seems to work. What else yep. went into your your decision making there for deciding to rebrand it and deciding that that's what the business should be? Yeah, I mean, I think we had we knew that the business we wanted to build would be bootstrapped and therefore it had to make money. The, there's no question about it. Like we would need money to pay ourselves eventually. We would need money to hire people. So we knew we had to make money. And so a big part of switching product paints to Canny was adding a pricing page. That was just step number one. Like we had to make money. We've never, even to this day, had a f- completely free plan. We have a free trial, but that's about it. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a big change. <laughs> so living in in the Bay Area... And deciding at the same time that like you want to bootstrap a business is not that common of a decision. I know a lot of founders in the Bay Area, usually the first thing people think of is I need to raise money from investors and then I don't have to worry about making money for several years. What was influential to you guys in deciding that you wanted yeah. to bootstrap? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think me and Andrew were on the same page here as well. Um, but we didn't like the idea of not owning what we were making. I don't know. We being in the Bay Area, we've heard you know the stories about you know inve- like bad investors and just what it's like to have investment. Like when somebody else is an owner in your company, they have a say in what you do, and that was scary to us and not very attractive. So yeah, that's not the route that we took. And we thought like, hey, we're gonna try this thing, and if it makes money, like great. And if not, then we'll try something else. It's not a big deal. Like we're product people. We can build things. That's what we're good at. We didn't feel like it was the biggest risk ever. I mean, it it, it is, but it also wasn't like it just happened to work out on our first try, which is great. But yeah, we knew from the beginning that we didn't want to raise anything. There's another company. I don't know if, if you, have you ever heard of Get Satisfaction? Yes. Yeah. So they were around when I first came to the Bay Area around 2009, 2010, and they raised a ton of money doing something yes. that kind of was similar to product pains. They're yes. kind of like a Yelp for customer service and user feedback. They had a lot of drama because they would set up <laughs> these pages that looked like they were official. So it'd be like, oh, this is the, like, you know, the ND Hackers community service website. And it's like, no, it's not. This is the get satisfaction page for ND Hackers. <laughs> so a lot of founders would get mad at them, but they raised something like 10 or $20 million which instantly is a huge promise to investors that you're going to build like this massive company. And then I think they just kind of cratered over time. So, you know, besides just investors having control over your company, I think one of the scary things is if you're not building a business that can get as big as investors would need it to be to succeed, then you're just sort of signing yourself up for a world full of pain. Absolutely. I heard about that drama actually, because I think we were starting Canon like just about around the same time. And yeah, that just it just didn't sound fun. Like we're already like trying to build a product. Like it's already going to be hard. Like why make it harder by throwing in another voice who we don't know, who we d- might not be able to trust. Like it just didn't seem like our thing. So yeah, we've never felt the need to do that. So up until this point, you hadn't really found product market fit yet. You had worked on product pains. That was okay. You pivoted into yeah. this widget that customers would actually pay you for. But it wasn't like you were selling tons of subscriptions. A few months go by, and then you launched. Tell me about your launch and how that went. 
Yeah, it, it was great. Honestly, like it was, uh, it exceeded our expectations. There were a lot of, we had a lot of signups. We went um, and launched through Product Hunt, which was, I would say Product Hunt was at its like peak around then. And like, there were a lot of people chiming in and like supporting us. So yeah, it was really, it was really great. And we still have some customers from that day two and a half years ago um so yeah i i I don't know i don't think it could have gone any better really you have a post on your nd hackers product page from october 1st 2017 it says you reached ramen profitability and i think you had just launched in what march of that year yeah so what is that seven (laughs) months from launch to ramen profitability that's that's pretty fast I I don't know. Maybe it is. Yeah, it's <laughs> that great. was just uh, what we felt at the time, and that that post actually uh, hit hit Hacker News, which was big for us. It was probably one of our first posts that hit Hacker News, and so we got a bunch of traffic that day. But yeah, we just like sharing stories and sharing our journey, and um, I think that post came off as very authentic and very interesting to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs. So yeah, I mean that was an exciting time, and we felt like we had something. So at some point during all this is when you just took off and became a digital nomad. Yeah, I would say probably May or June. Um, So a couple months after launch. Okay, so right after you launched. Tell me about how you made that decision. Honestly, it was such a last minute decision. I think it was the week before we were talking about it. And the next, (laughs) the day after we started talking about it, we told our roommates, we think we're going to leave. We're going to have to find someone else to fill our room. (laughs) And they were shocked, but I think excited for us. Um, And so, yeah, we took off and did a little tour of the United States first, just to say hi and bye to friends. But then from there, we hit up London, which was an easy ease in to the whole digital nomad life, I think. All English, all like very similar culture, I would (laughs) say-ish. But from there, I think we hit up like 26 cities in about two years so yeah, it's been it's been fun. <laughs> how do you how do you manage to get to profitability while also traveling to twenty six cities? Because it doesn't sound cheap to travel that much in two years. Honestly, I tell people that I save money because my rent in San Francisco, I'm sure you're familiar, was not great, even though I had several roommates. So, you know, when you're in a in Thailand, your rent is next to nothing compared to that. So, yeah, you are paying more for getting around for your flights and your buses and whatnot. But honestly, compared to San Francisco, I think I saved money. I did. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually not that hard to save money compared to SF rent. You're right. No matter where right. you're traveling, it's usually cheaper, especially if you're hitting yes. up like these sort of digital nomad hotspots, which are known to be pretty affordable. Bali, Thailand. South yeah. Africa is another cheap one that not a lot of people go to, but it's super affordable there. Yes. Yes. We've always had our eye on South Africa, but we never made it out there either. Uh, we did the Southeast Asia little round trip, but that part was tough. It was when we have customers that, uh, you know, demand our attention almost every half hour. Like it's, it's not easy, but trade-offs, right? Like we wanted to travel and we wanted to see Asia. So we had to do like 1am meetings. Like it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, give me a sense of what your your day-to-day was like when you're traveling and working on Candy in the early days uh, as a a co-founder couple. We tried to stay in each city for about a month. We felt like we had a chance to like settle down a little bit before we were on the move again because travel days are the toughest. You almost get guaranteed you won't get any work done that day. 
But yeah, we tried to stay in the city for about a month. So that enabled us to get a feel for the city and understand where we would work and, and where we would eat and all that stuff. So a lot of it was working out of cafes, which I love <laughs> um, because you, you also get to see the city and experience it as a local would as opposed to like going all going to the tourist hotspots and all that. So yeah, we spent a lot of time going from cafe to cafe and just, uh, and, you know, exploring the city on the weekends, but yeah, it was totally doable. And I would recommend it to anyone. (laughs) Traveled all over the world. What was your favorite place? Yeah. I always say in Europe, um, it was Valencia in Spain, which is just South of Barcelona. And we just, we just had a really cool community there. Um, there were a bunch of other, uh, remote workers and really friendly cafes. So that was, that was a really big highlight for us. And in Asia, we would say Seoul, Korea, there's so much stuff and the coffee is really good. Um, there's very, very fast Wi-Fi, unbeatable pretty Definitely. much, but we really enjoyed that uh, Korea as well. Yeah. If you're a founder <laughs> and you're traveling, Wi-Fi is crucial. You got to get work done. Exactly. We always did our research on Nomad List, like who has good Wi-Fi? Where can we have reliable cafes to work at? It was a thing. But honestly, they're, they're, like, people are pretty well connected now. Like We almost never went offline. <laughs> so while you're doing all this traveling, you had just launched on Product Hunt a few months before that. Generally speaking, there's this kind of trough of sorrow period after you launch where you're super excited. Your launch day goes well. There's tons mm-hmm. of people in the door. And then after that, Obviously, your launch is over and it drops back down. And now you have to yeah. figure out how you're going to grow and how you're going to find customers in the future. What was your strategy yeah. in those first few months? And how did you grow from, from basically zero dollars in revenue to ramen profitability? We tried to write. Even though we are very product-minded, the two of us had to say, hey, we're going to spend this amount of time every week to write something. And that was hard for us because, yeah, we just kind of naturally gravitate towards building cool things and writing was not that. So that felt weird, but it was very impactful for us. Like we, we wrote several blog posts and a lot of them were just us telling our stories. Like I wrote a post about pricing, which is this whole thing. And we build a community. People start hearing about us. Again, the word of mouth helped a lot. So it just naturally kind of crept up and, and it's been going ever since, honestly. Yeah. We, today we still try to write a lot. We're trying to do less of the one hits, like, we post it on Hacker News. If it doesn't work, we try again, that kind of strategy um, to more of an evergreen um, SEO focused strategy, which is working well for us too. And so, yeah, it's just I think it's just kind of you take it as it comes and um, try things and make sure you can tell if something's not working. And then, yeah, you keep pushing. <laughs> and I think it helped to not charge or to always charge money, always, because Everyone who is a potential support ticket like should be paying money. Yeah, it's just your time is your time is the most valuable thing. So, so you had yeah. a combination of blogging. Yep. The product was never free, so 100% nope. of the customers coming in the door contributing to your revenue growth, so mm-hmm. you're 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 getting there. Let's say I'm a brand new founder, I go through the same process, I launch, it goes mm-hmm. okay. What are your tips for me and how I should set up my blog and mm-hmm. my writing strategy because it's it's not always obvious how to write successfully. Yeah. So our most successful blog posts from the beginning were very much, here's what we did and here's what we learned from it. Um, it was very much almost like a recounting of the certain things we tried. So for pricing, for example, I wrote about four different 
pricing strategies that we tried and the good and bad things about each and why one thing was working and why other things weren't. And people really liked it. I think like pricing, especially is one of those things where you can't say, this is your price. This will always work. Like there's no formula really. So I think just hearing our story and how we thought through pricing really helped other founders. And so if you know, you're an entrepreneur and you try a certain thing that is different and interesting in a certain way, like write about it. And the nice thing is that you're just telling people what happened. Like you're not kind of creating content out of nothing. It's like something you did. So it should be really, really easy to write about. So I definitely recommend doing that and just sharing, sharing the knowledge, sharing the love. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole strategy behind Andy Hackers content. Exactly. People sharing their stories. And the thing is, you don't have to be an expert on any particular subject matter because you're already an expert on your own story. So exactly. all you really have to do is share that. And if you learn something, chances yes. are other people will probably learn something from reading right. about your experiences. Exactly. And nobody can tell you your story is wrong or you experienced something bad. Like, this is what we did. Like, you can't really argue. This is take it or leave it. If it helps, great. If it doesn't, we'll try again next time. <laughs> is there anything from your blogging experiences with the benefit of hindsight that you would have done differently if you could go back and start all over again? Yeah, I think all of, all we would do differently is do it more. <laughs> like we always gravitate towards product. Like I said, like we would always be like drifting back to product, even though we didn't have to, we would just want to build the next cool feature. And when you're so resource limited, like it's really important that you focus on the right things. And I think we could have focused a lot more on writing, um, but that's okay. Like we are we're not lost. We uh, are continuing to write today. Um, and so, yeah, we just take it from here. And I hope, you know, me saying that now will help other founders do that earlier. Yeah, I know you're still working on it, too, because I was I was Googling you, Sarah, and I found you have an account <laughs> on uh, 200 words a day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have, you've got a, quite an impressive streak going on. You write every single day. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Somebody noticed. Uh, that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, I write 200 words a day. It was purely for me to get in the habit of writing, get in the habit of ideating, um, different blog posts that I should write. So what I usually do is write 200 words of a blog post a day. So by the end of a week, I usually have about a full blog post and it doesn't feel like, like the, barrier to entry, the wall is not as high because I only have to do 200 words. That has been helping me a lot. The streak, of course, I don't want to break it. I think I'm almost at 200 days in a row or something like that. But yeah, it's just, it's very motivating. I think it's business impactful. So both good things. <laughs> is there anything else you do every single day as a founder? Because I, I try to have these habits where I'm like, okay, this is so good to do. I should do it every day, but I can never sustain more than just like one or two things like that. Yeah, it's definitely hard. I think I just try to cut off at the end of the day. Like I just like my brain is fried. I'm done. I make time for myself and my brain to watch Netflix or do my drawing or whatever so that I am refreshed and ready for the next day. Like I think that's it's not really doing anything. It's almost like doing nothing. But um, it's it's definitely important, I think. And I think that especially for early founders, like they think that they must spend all of their waking hours on their product. But I think there is something to be said about detaching and kind of replenishing all those, you know, brain juices <laughs> for the next day. I just talked to 
Patrick Campbell. He's the CEO of mm. ProfitWell on the podcast. And he was talking about how there are three different levers you can sort of pull on to grow your business. So one of them is user acquisition, getting new people in the door. That's you blogging. That's creating a really good product that spreads through word of mouth. Another one is monetization, which is everything to do with pricing. How much do you charge? Yep. What are your plans look like? How do you upgrade people? How many people convert to a paid plan? How often do you charge them? All that kind of stuff. That can raise your revenue significantly if you make the right decisions or really hinder you if you don't. And then the last one is retention, which is just like how long do these people stick around? If they leave, it doesn't really matter how much you're charging them. You're not going to make that much money. Let's talk about monetization because you've brought up the fact that you've written a couple blog posts on four different <laughs> pricing strategies that you tried. What have you learned about pricing in the course of running Canny? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, we haven't tried freemium, which is like the big, you know, should we or should we not in startups, I think, or SaaS, especially anyway. But yeah, so at the beginning, we had a $2 plan. That was our lowest plan ever. $2 uh, a month? It was, yes, $2 a month. And it was basically we were, free. <laughs> yeah, we were referring it to it. We were referring to it as cheapium instead of freemium. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just so we thought we could get the easy bit of, you know, signal that somebody thought it was valuable. So they might as well at least pay $2, right? Yeah. What ended up happening was that people were just like, we had to chase people for like $2 a month, which is not a good use of time. Um, and it, it just, it just didn't work. Now we're actually talking about doing freemium again. <laughs> uh, we always talk about it, I feel like, but we feel like it might be a good time to try it out. I think pricing is never a set it and forget it thing. It's you will be iterating on it. Like your product is getting more and more valuable. You should be able to charge more and more for it. And so we are hoping to charge more because we have built so many things in the last year that we feel like are valuable and should be paid for. But also I think um, adding that freemium level on top might help just acquisition and boost word of mouth even more. So yeah, it's, it's I have no answers. But that's what we're trying. <laughs> yeah, the thing about charging $2 a month is that you really can't afford to do very much for any customers who are only paying $2 a month. I mean, like, can you afford to talk to them over email? I don't know. Is it worth Is it worth your time? Probably no. not. <laughs> you can't do sales. You can't you now, do ads. No. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not. So we tried it and it's a cool story, but we probably won't ever do that again. <laughs> One thing I think that makes that story more common than it should be is that as an early stage founder, you're looking out and you're thinking, well, my product is going to get more valuable over time and it will be worth a lot someday. But right now it's just me and maybe my co-founder working on this really tiny thing. Uh, why would anyone ever pay 50, 100, $300 a yeah. month for this thing? Did you feel like that in the early days of Canny? Yeah. And I think I read the advice, you know, I read that product people are notorious for like valuing their product too low. And so by reading that, I was like, maybe I can bump it a little higher and not feel like horrible about it. But I think over time, like we just, we tried to push things a little more. So we would set it maybe a little higher than we felt comfortable with. And then we would wait and see what people say. You know, people say, oh, this is, this is insane or whatever. Like, Okay, that's that's a data point. Oh, like uh, uh, this is this is totally reasonable. That's another data point. So pricing is this very flexible thing. Like don't don't worry. Like you can change it. Like yeah, it will take work to like grandfather people, and it's a whole thing. But it's a huge part of your business, and it could drive it much much higher. So 
I would say it's a risk worth taking. What kind of pricing plans did you end up on after all the experimentation that you've done so far? Yeah. So our current pricing starts at $50 a month. So we think, you know, startups around 10 to 50-ish people, teams. And then we have a $200 price point for teams bigger than that. And then we have a custom bucket for anybody who may surpass all of those uh, features that we have available. But at the same time, we also have a value metric which Patrick can tell you a lot about as well, um, that scales based on the amount or the number of people that give you feedback. So we get a significant amount of growth from upgrades every month, which feels great. Uh, And it's been working really, really well for about a year. So I think it is time for us to try to switch up our pricing again, but it's definitely something that we felt has worked in the past. And so we'll definitely use it to inform our future pricing. It's interesting because your pricing is so connected to every other part of your business. For example, mm. what types of customers are you even dealing with? If you're dealing with really big companies, you're going to have to have like that huge custom plan and a lot of inter- right. infrastructure built out for that. If you're dealing with really small customers, maybe your value metric, you know, cutoffs have to be lower. You have to say, okay, well, you know, once you get to five people giving you feedback, you, you right. pay us more because you're a tiny team. You're not going to have very many people. How did these realizations affect your pricing? And what are some things you've learned about your customers since you've launched? Yeah, I think so. From the beginning, we were trying to charge based on people. I think that was what we thought showed what kind of business you are, how successful you are, and how much you might be willing to pay. Um, so that's the metric that we landed on. People um, giving feedback or people working at the company who could log into camp? Uh, people giving feedback. So your your user base, basically. Right. At the beginning, we, we said, oh, like... If you have this many total users, you're in this bucket. But honestly, there was no way we can know how many users you have. So people were just really self-bucketing themselves, which was surprising. But honestly, you could have been like a you could have had a million customers and signed up for our small startup plan. So <laughs> um, it's a bunch of trial and error. Like you sometimes, you know, people just sign up for the bucket that they feel like they're suited for. And so you just you you learn and you see what people say about your different plans. And the reason why we've kept, we've stayed on our current plan for so long is because we've gotten good feedback about it um, and people think it's reasonable. So yeah, I think now is the time to, to make that change. But also at the very beginning, we were trying to target almost everyone. <laughs> like we were trying to make pricing that qualified for consumer companies and you know the solopreneur and the big b2b business and yeah be everything was, to everybody yes exactly and i think that's just the, the mistake that everyone has to make to feel the pain of it is just like you try to serve everyone and you and then you serve everyone really badly and so we eventually started narrowing down our target audience and trying to and started figuring out really who is going to pay for this who really wants this who is going to find value out of this and then with that we were able to make our pricing more targeted and make more sense for the people that we actually wanted as customers how do you do that you have so many people using your app you have people who you don't want to cut off because they're paying you money and they're saying good things about your product how do you like, I guess, strategically even figure out which type of persona is the best for using your business. And also emotionally, how do you, how do you feel good cutting <laughs> other people off and not serving their interests? Yeah. I mean, I like, don't get me wrong. There are still those people who will sign up and pay and that's totally fine. But like our marketing and like our pricing pages, they're not written for those people. They will get through and that's okay. Um, I'm not going to turn them away, but, um, 
I think you pay attention to your data that you have. We just saw the usage of certain kind of companies was stronger than others. People like just expressed more value. People that were B2B businesses for us expressed that they got more value out of Canny. Um, I think that's just like due to talking to customers. Um, We have live chat on our site. Like it's really simple. Just listening to people and what they were saying. So eventually we just started like shaping this kind of vision of what our customer looks like in our heads. And yeah, it doesn't feel great to cut people off, but I think that's how you build a strong business because when you're building a product and you're considering like a bajillion different features, you want to make sure that the features you're seriously considering are for those people specifically, your target people, because the product, our product today could be 10 times bigger, but not useful for our target if we weren't paying attention to that. So this is the perfect segue into Canny itself. <laughs> Paying attention yes. to what you, your users want, what kind of features <laughs> they need. Do you use Canny uh, in sort of a dog food drone product sort of way to, to figure out what people want from Canny? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> when people ask that, do you have a Canny for Canny? I'm like, yes, of course. Here's where it is. Um, like, it's the fact that we can dog food our own product is super helpful. It's we know that a feature we're considering will be useful to us. Um, and that's a good gut to say that, oh, this will be useful to our customer our, our customer base. And we can feel the pains of our own product. We can feel what the product needs. Um, we feel everything. Um, so that's that's been really nice. And when we can use our own product for something, we're really excited. Just put that on Canny or just check out the Canny board or whatever. You know, like it, it feels really good. <laughs> Yeah, I use Indie Hacker sometimes to ask for business advice. And that's right. the entire purpose of Indie Hacker. So it's like, ah, right. it's perfect. Right. I feel like I'm, I'm my own user. And not every totally. business can do that. A lot of people are making no. products for, for people who aren't them, which right. just makes it that much more challenging to sort of figure out what you need to add. Yeah, it's harder to empathize. You don't, you don't, you're not trying to solve the same problem. Like for us, we're trying to build a better product. That's what Canny tries to help you do. So if Canny does that for us, it must be doing that for other people. At least that's that's what makes sense. Yeah. So even when you have a list of feature suggestions from customers, a list of mm-hmm. problems and bugs they're running into and things that they want, mm-hmm. uh, it's still not necessarily easy to figure out what nope. you're going to build. Because customers <laughs> have a very different perspective than you do as a founder. You're trying to think strategically, at least to some degree, like what's going to make us bigger and better and help us out. And customers are just like, what's going to make the product itself more comfortable for me to use? And like, mm-hmm. they're usually requesting these small incremental changes. How do you think about which features to prioritize a canny? Do you have sort of mm-hmm. like a framework in your head of what you should build at any given time? Yeah. I mean, so like if this was easy, like product managers wouldn't be a thing. Like it would be, it would be Yeah, just crazy. give me the product manager checklist <laughs> so we can fire all the product managers. Um, yeah, right. Um, so what we do usually is we usually like at a given quarter or given month or whatever, we have some kind of uh, target goal. For this month, we were looking at increasing trial to paid. So the more people that get start a trial, we want more, a bigger percentage of them to end up paying. And so we kind of consider features that would impact that goal. So a lot of it was to do with onboarding and even um, like our drip campaign and stuff like that. So um, we definitely like put a list together of different projects that we feel like would impact that goal and kind of rank them by um, effort versus impact and all that good stuff. And if it's in canny, that's a 
big bonus. Like we get to go in there and say, uh, here's what different people are saying about the the issue, or maybe um, they have some insight into something that um, that we're not currently doing or that we're doing wrong or whatever. Um, and it's also a place where we can go and say, hey, this is what we're thinking about for X, Y, Z. What do you think? So Canny is a place for you to get insights out of. Like it's, we're not going to give you the answers. Like we're not going to tell you, hey, this is what you should prioritize this month. But it's there when we need it to inform the decisions that we make. What are your thoughts on getting feedback from potential customers before you reach product market fit and after? Like, are you asking the same kinds of questions? Do you want the same kinds of feedback? Do you prioritize user feedback the same way now? as you did back when you were just trying to figure out what kind of product to work on? I think today, like after we've found a decent fit, it's it's more how do we make the product better for the for our target audience because we figured out who that is. Um, and in the beginning, it's a little more scrambled. It's like a lot more guessing because you're, you probably don't have enough data yet. Like we tried doing A-B tests at the very beginning and like there just wasn't enough people. So there's no point in doing this. Yeah, I think it does change a little bit, but um, ultimately you're you're trying to build a product for a specific type of person. And so that didn't change, but I think, yeah, the audience changed. So you've, you mentioned your your pricing right now is minimum plan is 50 bucks a month. That's about yep. 25 times higher than your old minimum <laughs> plan. Uh, right. But now you're, you're considering a move to freemium. So people would be able to sign up for Candy for mm-hmm. free, try it out, and then they'd eventually, I guess, upgrade. Why consider that? Why even go back to the drawing board with your pricing? Yeah, I think um, I think we've always like at the since the beginning we've always wanted to serve small companies. Like we are one of them. We want to help them, and our pricing today blocks a lot of them. And so I think that's just one of like the feel good reasons for us to do freemium. But I also think that like Patrick says, like it's an acquisition strategy. It's uh, we get more people, more eyeballs on the product. We get more people trying it out and hopefully we get really good at convincing them to upgrade. But yeah, like on like our, our word of mouth, public product helps generate revenue a lot. And if we can have more people using the product in general, I think it'll definitely help. Let's talk about competition for a little bit, because I think this is a pretty big factor in why a lot of early stage founders either don't decide to work on a particular idea because they see a competitor is already doing it. I'm too late. Someone already took my idea or why they charge very little, which we already talked about. How do you think about the competition for Canny? Because you aren't the first company to exist to allow companies to collect feedback from their users. So, I mean, in the early days, we, since we were building product pains and weren't really paying attention to anything, which is probably not good advice. Um, we didn't really, we weren't really paying attention to like user voice, which was the big player and maybe is still the big player. So we kind of just built what we, what we thought was good and what we thought was helpful, which I'm kind of grateful for now that I think about it. But on the flip side, I think there, there've been a lot of similar products cropping up recently that people compare to us. And honestly, I think competition is a good thing in general, but it's, it's definitely like a, you know, a thorn in our side almost. It's, it's hard. Um, but I think we are confident that we are good product builders and we can kind of stay ahead of the curve instead of like following the footsteps of someone else. So 
yeah, we're, we are aware of them, but we don't let them get to us. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would guess that your biggest competition is basically people using nothing. Like if I start a company, yes. my default decision is I'm going to put my email address on my contact yes. us page. People will send me emails with suggestions and I'll just like kind of reply. And that's my, <laughs> that's my solution. How do you, how do you convince someone who's doing it like that? You might not even be looking for something like canny, uh, that they yep. need a tool to help them collect customer feedback. Yeah. Um, I would almost say that if, if you don't have, well, first of all, if you don't have customers, you probably, <laughs> you probably don't not need not like, like talking about target audience again, like you're probably not there yet. And I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Like you, a lot of people start with spreadsheets. A lot of people start with email address, like you mentioned. Um, and that's okay. It's our job to convince you at the time that you feel, start feeling the pain that you move to a more dedicated system. And so that's what we find with us. Spreadsheets are the enemy to a lot of other startups and that's really fine, but we have an import tool. Like that's we just help bridge the gap when you're ready. And yeah, that's just how we handle that. It's, it's, it's not a concern for us. Let's talk about hiring for a minute, Sarah. Canny is now a five person company. It's no longer just you and your husband, but you've also got three employees working under you. How did you go about building up your team? Yeah. I mean, it took a while. Like (laughs) it took us a while to make the amount of money that we needed to start hiring, but we stuck it out. Like we, we saw it, you know, in the, in the distance and we knew it was achievable. So we just waited. It was the two of us for a while. We waited until we could afford someone, but the first person we hired was someone for customer success. So they cover success and support which was a huge weight lifted off us. It was, we, we now, we now do not wake up to a huge queue of support emails and live chats. Um, so that's been really nice, but like over time, we're just kind of thinking about it. Like what is the biggest part of our brain that we dedicate to something that might be a little less important than what I'm really good at. And how do we bring someone on to fill that role? And so, yeah, that's that's kind of what we've done. Uh, when we feel the need for someone, we put up a job listing and, and try to bring someone on. Um, and that's another reason why I think bootstrapping was the way to go for us was we didn't feel the pressure to have to grow insanely fast. We're never like, we must hire someone now. Um, so yeah, we're just, we're taking it easy. We're um, thinking about it really hard before we make the decision to do something. But yeah. We're at a we're at a nice family size now. <laughs> Hiring can be pretty nerve wracking, especially if you've never done it before, if you've never interviewed someone before, if you've never managed somebody before, and also you're going to do it remotely, <laughs> so you don't even get to yeah. talk to this person like in person all the time. What are some things you've learned about hiring and managing people that others might want to know? Yeah, I think so. I haven't been a manager before. I have never been a manager before, and that was and still is probably one of the hardest parts of my job for me is just understanding how to help people do the things that they are here to do and also that they're happy doing it and they feel fulfilled. It's something that's on my mind constantly, but I think the fact that I am pretty self-aware helps a lot. Like I, I can tell when there's something wrong about something, when there's stuff I need to say, like I'm, I don't hold things in when I, when I feel it's important to be said. So. I feel like transparency is number one, like just like be open with the people that you work with. Like you, you are a family, like you, you see each other. Well, you don't see each other really, but you're, you're working together for a lot of the day. And it's important for everyone to like, just trust you and feel 
feel good about working together. I think that's that's one of the main things that I'm trying to achieve. Uh, and we're trying to do that with our uh, team offsites as well. So we try to see each other three to four times a year. We've done three team retreats so far. So yeah, just keeping the relationship like really honest and open, I feel like is what's working for me right now. What are your goals with with hiring and bringing more people on and with Kenny in general? Like, what do you see this going in five or 10 years? Five or 10, that's hard. Okay, um, you're right. Um, <laughs> how about in one or two years? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we want to, I want to continue growing our team very sustainably. Like when one person is onboarding, I want them to be the focus. I want to make sure that they are comfortable and they feel good about the work that they'll be doing here. I do want to grow up bigger. Like we have a lot of cool stuff that we want to build. We have, we have cool things that we want to do. Um, so I definitely want to grow up bigger product wise. I think I see canny working for bigger companies soon from the beginning, we've really built the product up to work for um, small, small and medium businesses. Um, and there are bigger businesses knocking at our door. So if we can serve them as well, that would be great. And just continue to help teams make better decisions. I just feel like people make decisions like based on almost nothing. And if we can help inform them with what their actual customers are saying, like that's that's what Canny is here for. <laughs> What kind of effect do you want your business to have on your life as a founder? Because I know some people who are like, I never want to hire. Then it gets real. You know, then I have to be a manager. Yeah. It's not just a fun thing for me anymore. I know some people who yeah. are like, I want to hire hundreds of people and run a massive company because that's how I see myself. Yeah. How do you want to affect your life personally with Canny? So, I mean, Canny has enabled me to travel for the last two years, which is is super great. And I never wanted to get to this place where... I feel icky or something about going to work every day and I feel like unfulfilled and like we're doing the wrong thing. So um, I never want to get that, that to that point. But I think growing like the hugest team isn't super uh, interesting to me. Like I never want to be so detached from the product that I don't even know what's going on. Um, so personally, I do want to keep it like kind of cute and small. <laughs> um, but at the same time, really having like big impact with just a small team, I think that's that's what I want. And that's the power of internet-based businesses. You can have a giant impact with a really yes. tiny team. You can have a big impact by yourself, yes. really. Yes. So this show is listened to by a lot of people who were in a similar position to where you were two and a half years ago, who are maybe just starting on things or considering getting started. Uh, what would you say to somebody who's in that situation, Sarah? What would you what would you want them to know? Yeah, I think if you're at a full-time job right now and you're considering like starting a company, like nothing will prepare you for that really. Just take the leap and do it because I have learned so much more in the last two years than I have like in my whole time at Facebook. Um, it's just, it's, it's something else. It's, it's, um, it's not, you you really need to experience it to really know um, what it's like and make mistakes and, and realize like making mistakes is okay. And yeah, just try it. <laughs> just try it. You heard it here first. Yep. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for A coming. A plus advice. It's true. People need to try. It's good advice. You can't just listen to podcasts all the time. Anyway, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure having you. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Canny? 
Yeah. Uh, so we're, I mean, me personally, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Hum. Uh, we share like cute photos and team photos and team events on Instagram at carry on code. Um, and yeah, Kenny is Kenny.io. Check us out. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks, Carlin. Listeners, if you enjoyed hearing from Sarah, I would love it if you reached out to her and let her know. She is at Sarah Hum on Twitter. So if you learned anything or appreciated hearing her story, take a second and tell her thanks. I also love it when you reach out. You can find me at IndieHackers.com, which is a community of many thousands of founders and developers who are helping each other getting started building profitable online businesses. So yeah, it's not just a podcast. It's also a website. If you're working on something new or just thinking about it, I encourage you to make a post there and tag me so I can respond. I'm at CS Allen. And again, that's IndieHackers.com. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time. <music>